invite you to take your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. Open them to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 12. The 12th chapter. Today we come to a particularly hard saying of our Lord. Um, It's difficult both in its interpretation and in its realization. And by that I mean in in understanding it, living by it, um, applying it, even in some ways agreeing with it. Because today's text is one that corrects our often false view and understanding of biblical Christianity, of the Christian faith. We are often guilty of possessing this false understanding and having a false perspective of what true faith really is, what the Bible defines as true Christianity, what it's actually all about. For many in the church, and and we're not talking outside of the church, even in the church, within our own ranks, our brothers and sisters, for many of us, the church, the Christian faith, has morphed into Nothing more than a social initiative and program-oriented good works machine. Where we are just an organization that is all about good deeds done to a world around us. I fear that the church is more concerned and growing more concerned about the good deeds that we can do for a good reputation rather than we are in taking a stance for the gospel no matter how offensive it may be. Let me clarify for a moment, good works are by their very title good. We do good works, God calls us to do good works, and our good works are meant to bring at least some part of the kingdom of God to fruition here on earth, here and now. My fear is we become more concerned about our good deeds than we are about the gospel. We're more concerned about having good reputation in the community and the world around us than we are about being offensive or disruptive and proclaiming that people are sinners in need of a Savior. I think the reason is because good deeds done to society in the name of religion are often acceptable and welcomed. They're received very well and in fact, the world expects that of us, right? If you, if you um, minister to somebody in need of financial assistance off the street, typically what I hear and other pastors around town that I've spoken to, typically you hear the phrase along the lines of, isn't this what the church is supposed to do? Aren't these good initiatives what the church is meant for? The world even expects our good deeds. And so we readily give them. And my fear is we give them without ever being concerned about proclaiming the gospel at the same time. Because taking a stand for the gospel is not easy, is it? And taking a stand for the things of God, the word of God and the standard of God is actually incredibly unpopular and despised. The church is welcomed and loved and and treated friendly when we are doing good deeds to society. The, The church is not welcomed and loved and treated us friendly when we proclaim the message of the cross. In fact, as Jesus is going to teach in Luke chapter 12 this morning, we can even say that the Christian faith by its nature is divisive. It splits families. 
It destroys friendships. It hinders your financial growth in this life. It stifles your career success. It supplants your worldly desires. And it can even cost you your life. The message of the cross to this dying world is, make no mistake, offensive and foolish. And so if you are going to take a stand with Jesus as He is going to teach in Luke 12 this morning, if you're going to take a... Take a stand with Jesus. You need to count the cost first and foremost. And be ready to lose everything for the sake of Christ. What a sobering question. And what a sobering reality that must weigh heavy on our hearts. Are we a people absolutely willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ? This isn't just some ideological question I pose to you, church. It is an ever-increasing possibility in this world. We are in a day and age in our own country where just on the horizon these sorts of choices and decisions are going to have to be made. Are you willing to forsake everything for the sake of Christ? Christianity is divisive. This day that we have lived in in freedom in the last 50 or 75 years, the day of professing the Christian faith and yet looking just like the world around us is quickly drawing to a close. And the church is coming to a day where her light will shine even more brighter than it ever has because her members are going to have to be even more distinct from the world around them than they ever have before. The flimsy Christian morals and principles that the country was founded on and has lived under for the last 100 years are gone. And what is now celebrated as right is actually wrong in God's eyes. And what is right in God's eyes is unequivocally declared wrong by our world. And we have to take a stand... And that means we will be divided from the world around us. We will be so distinct, and that distinction brings nothing more than hatred towards us. When we take a stand and say that divorce is wrong. When we take a stand and say abortion is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Unbelief and no faith is wrong. Wrong, we will be hated. And that's what we come to find our Lord teaching on this morning in Luke chapter 12. This divisive nature of Christianity that will cost you, maybe even your life. And yet, we ought to be people ready to incur the cost. Jesus is issuing in verse 49 through 53, a very real and very sober warning to all those who follow Him. The point of the text is found in verse 51. Jesus asks a question and then He answers His own question. And the whole text is kind of built around this question and the the principle found in the question. Verse 51, He says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? 
Everything about this text is answering that and defining that. Jesus gives his own answer to that question at the end of verse 51. No, I tell you. But instead, rather, division. What a shocking answer coming from the mouth of Jesus. That's not the Jesus that is common in the world's mind. That's not the Jesus that most Christians who just uh, happenstance attend church would define Him as. That's, that's not what we think of Jesus, right? This isn't the fluffy, tolerant, uh, everybody be happy, only kind Jesus. This is a Jesus who says, I know I bring division. And I still bring it. I make no qualms about it. We deal here with a matter of peace in relationship to Jesus. Peace, and it could also loosely imply ease of life. Christ did not come to bring you ease of life. He did not come to bring you peace in this world. Now, some of you may be asking the same question I did when I studied this text. What about all the passages where it says Jesus brings peace? I thought... Most notably, even in this own gospel right here, Luke's own handwriting, the birth of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 14, the angels appear and Luke reports to us what they sing. They sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We can even go back to the Old Testament prophecies about Christ, the Messiah coming, most notably Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, these titles and names given for the coming Messiah, and the, the last one given is Prince of Peace. I go back, there's, there's other references, but I, I want to go back to the Gospel of Luke just to show you that even in the same Gospel, these two things exist. If you go back to chapter 1, when Zechariah is speaking again because John the Baptist has been born, and, and now he's proclaiming who John the Baptist will be. And at the end of his proclamation in chapter 1, he says, John the Baptist is going to tell of the way of the Lord who will guide our feet into the way of peace. Even in referencing John the Baptist and his role, Zechariah says, there is coming a Lord who will guide us into peace. So how can Jesus now say in verse 51, I do not come to give peace on the earth. These reference texts have to mean something. And they have to go together with what Christ is saying in verse 51. I believe the answer is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is the kind of peace that Christ brings, that He references. Romans 5, verse 1. We now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ is the Prince of Peace. He has come to bring peace on earth among those with whom He is pleased. Peace with God. An inner peace that dwells and occupies. No Christian is guaranteed a peaceful existence in this world. They're guaranteed peace in their heart. Christ has come to give peace to those who belong to Him. But He's come to cast a vision on the earth. The vision for those who reject God. They will not know peace. They will not have peace. All they will have is turmoil. And discontentment. And lack of purpose and fulfillment in their life. 
They will have chaos and hardship and trouble and a lifetime of unsatisfaction. That is what awaits those who reject Christ. Not peace. Even in regards to this, for us as Christian, Christians, the Bible tells us the same hostility that's shown towards Jesus will be shown towards you and I. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus is actually taking time to teach this to His own disciples. Chapter 15, verse 19, verse 18, He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Praying to the Father in John 17, verse 14, he says this of his disciples, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The true nature of our Christian faith church is divisive. It often brings hatred. It often brings dissension. It often separates. Is it a faith worth having? Is it a faith worth possessing? Is it a faith that you care to continue to hold on to? The answer is quite clear in verse 51. I tell you, I bring division. And all those who desire to follow me, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, according to Paul, will be what? Persecuted. The distinction that belongs to us as the children of God incures upon us not favor in the world's eyes, hostility in the world's eyes. This is what Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12. He's going to explain to us a couple of things. He's going to explain to us the cause of division. Why is Christianity divisive? He's going to explain to us even the degree of division. How far-reaching is this division in our lives? Look with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus is speaking. And Luke reports to us what he says in verse 49. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided against three. Five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Sobering text and teaching of our Lord. Let's first consider verse 49 and verse 50. Division is certain for us. Division is certain. Jesus begins this teaching of His without holding back. He's very clear, forthright, and bold. In several places throughout the New Testament, we see Christ 
declare his reason for being here, his reason for coming. And this text, he declares a reason that most would not expect. He talks of fire. Now, I have to admit, there is a certain degree of difficulty in trying to determine what Christ is alluding to here in verse, verse 49, because he does not explain his imagery of fire. We do know several things, however, from the context and the usage of the term in the New Testament. We know first, at this particular point in time, as Christ is teaching, the fire has yet to be cast. Whatever it may be, it's in the future at this point. Verse 49, Jesus says, I would that it were already kindled. It's not yet already kindled, but I want it to be. We know also that Jesus desires this fire to be cast upon the earth. Again, the same language. I would have it that it were already kindled. There's something good about this fire, something necessary even about this fire. We also know Jesus is the one who casts it. Very clearly, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. He's the source of it. He's the initiator of it. Now, from the usage of the term in the New Testament, we know of three very plausible uh, answers to what Christ is referencing here. Most often in the scriptures, this term for fire is used in reference to judgment. You, you see it coupled sometimes with other words like hellfire or lake of fire, but most often it's meant for judgment. Fire represents the fury and wrath of God. In the context, one might interpret it, and some do, to mean division. I have come to cast division on the earth. Even in a few other places in the New Testament, this word for fire means purification. I think specifically of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-10 through 10 or 3-8 through 8 right in there. And Peter references the trials of our faith being like fire that purifies gold. It's a, it's a fire that purges sin from our lives. Now I think all three of these may be in the realm of possibility for an answer. In fact, I think you can mix two of these definitions and imply the third one and figure out what Christ is talking about in the context of this passage. I think He is referencing with the usage of the term fire both judgment and purification with the implication of division. This fire that He comes to cast on the earth is a consuming fire that will consume all wickedness. The end of Psalm chapter 1 doesn't just say the wicked will perish. It says the way of the wicked will perish. It's a fire that engulfs everything. In fact, Peter in First and Second Peter talks about the earth being dissolved by fire. Burning up all the wickedness. But I think it's also a purifying fire. A, a fire of grace, a fire that purges sin from our lives, a, a, a fire that, that removes all the impurities and makes us solid and, and clean and, and firm. In both cases, it brings about division. Because it is one singular fire and you belong to it in one of two ways. It's either for you a consuming fire of judgment or it is a purifying fire of grace. And it will divide 
humanity. I do not think Christ is intentionally desiring and trying to divide the world. I think He allows His actions to be divisive based upon people's responses. We can take an idea from this text and verse 50 as well to understand when this fire is going to be cast according to Christ and how it will be cast. What's going to make it a consuming fire of judgment and what's going to make it a purifying fire that purges sin? And that's the answer to our question. What is so divisive about Christianity? It's found in verse 50. It's the cross of Christ. Coupled together, Christ says, I came to cast fire on the earth and I would that it were already kindled. And then immediately following, He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. That baptism is His crucifixion. Nothing distresses the heart of Christ except the cross. Nothing burdens his soul except for the reality of what he's going to endure in drinking in the wrath of God for humanity's sin. His baptism is a baptism into fire as well. It's into the fire of God's fury and God's wrath towards sinful humanity. I came to cast fire on the earth. I'm casting it through my baptism. I wish that it were already over with because my soul is in distress until it's accomplished. The whole point of the text today of Luke 12 in this passage is the dividing nature of the cross. The cross is the great divider of humanity. The gospel separates those who are opposed to its message and the work of Christ from those who embrace it and believe. It's at the cross that a great and eternal line in the sand was drawn that separates humanity from that point on throughout the rest of eternity. And it separates us based upon those who embrace and those who reject. Those who have been crucified with Christ and now live because of Him. And those who reject Christ and ignore the cross. It divides because it's offensive. And it's offensive because it reveals just how sinful we are. The world hates the cross and the message of the cross because it's nothing more than a reminder of the gruesome reality of their complete inability to save themselves. Think of how gruesome the cross is. How wretched that scene is. How much more so on an infinite scale must our sin be For that to take place. The cross is offensive to the world. Because it reminds them. You are indeed. Deep in your soul. Wicked. The cross is offensive. Because it reminds the world. That we are dependent creatures. That we can't save ourselves. That we do need a savior. That no amount of good works will atone for our sins. That we are hopeless and helpless without Christ. The cross is offensive because it reminds us that God is in control. And we are only saved according to His mercy. The cross is offensive because it reminds us that God does in fact have standards. And He does in fact have demands. And we do not meet them. 
and he cuts no one any slack. Our God is not a tolerant God towards sin. He's just patient. Cross is offensive because it reminds us that we are guilty before him. That we have to answer to him. And sinful humanity does not want to be humbled before God and reminded of their sin and reminded that they're guilty before God. Sinful humanity does not want to be held accountable to God or be under God's authority. That's why people hate the cross. Because it is a clear reminder. God's in control. And we have transgressed Him. People hate the cross because they don't see a message of salvation like you and I do. Rather, they see the reality of their plight before God without Christ. People hate the gospel or the cross because the gospel makes it very clear that without Jesus, they are already condemned. They want things on their own terms. They want to come to God as they want to come to God. And they want to come to God as they can do on their own ability and on their own terms and in their own imagination. They want there to be multiple paths to God. But the cross says it's only through Jesus. And salvation is entirely on God's terms. So the world hates the cross. Thus, what is so divisive about Christianity is the singular message of the cross. It is divisive and offensive to a dying world. No one wants to be reminded of their guilt, of their shame, of their impending death and condemnation. And yet, church, what's striking about this is no matter how offensive the cross is, that is our only message. That's all we have to offer. That's all that's offered to us. That is the solution. That is the answer. That is the way of forgiveness and atonement. It will be offensive. And if we preach that message from the biblical perspective of what the gospel really is, we will incur hostility. If you are here to make friends with the world, you are in the wrong place. The world constantly rejects authority. Authority from one another. And then the world unites together to reject the supreme authority of God. No one wants to be reminded of the reality of the cross. And yet, all of these things, guilt, shame, condemnation, impending death, authority, accountability, all these things must be realized in order to embrace the cross appropriately. You have to be humbled before God to be saved. It is God who said, I oppose the proud. And humility is foreign to the nature of humanity, and yet, it's required. And so yet again, the cross is found to be offensive to the world around us. What about you? Is the cross offensive to you? Is the cross and by implication your salvation in Christ, is it more important to you than 
your pride or your stature in this world or your reputation or your independence and on and on and on and on and on. What about for us as a church? If the day came that we were no longer allowed to meet in open, in public, and in freedom, is the cross still worth it? Is the gospel still worth it? What if we ask our brother in Bangladesh who was beaten this year for his new faith in Christ, is it worth it? What if we ask beheaded Paul and crucified Peter and 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 boiled and exiled John and on and on and on and on and, and murdered James and on and on and on. Ask these guys, was it worth it? Is Christ worth it? Is the message worth it? Because Jesus is making it very clear you will be hated because of the cross. This fire that I bring, it's going to consume and infuriate the wicked and it'll purify the, the believing but it's going to forever separate the two of you. And those under condemnation will not take it sitting down and not take it lightly. And yet, that's the only message I give you to proclaim. Is the cross worth it? Is it more important than anything else you hold on into this life? For many people, sadly, it is not. And we are quick to claim that it is, but when push comes to shove, often it is not. Fear of rejection takes over. Fear of ridicule takes over. Fear of exile takes over. You have one singular message, and Christ is telling us up front, it's the only message I give to you, and it is going to be offensive, but you have to share it, and we cower away from sharing it. We're all guilty of that. Where the gospel is not more important than hostility from our coworker or exile from our, our neighbor or mocking from our family members. Don't be surprised, church. We instead have to be a people who count all things as rubbish in comparison to Christ. We must be a people who embrace the loss of all things so that we might gain everything in Jesus. We must hold this life with an open hand and cling to the life to come with a clenched fist. The vision is certain. Christ said, I bring it. I am bringing it in my work and in my message. Are you ready for it, church? Are you going to embrace Christ in the midst of it? The day is dawning when we will experience this division from the world. When we take a stand for what the Bible says and people leave our church, people ridicule us and call us bigots, narrow-minded and ungracious and legalistic, the day is already here. For those languages are being used even in the church towards those who de desire to honor God. Real quickly here, because we do want to take the Lord's Supper this morning, verse 52 and verse 53, let's talk about the degree of division. In making His point, Jesus declares that following and believing in Him is so divisive 
he goes straight after the most secure and fundamental social and human institution, the family. You want to know just how divisive the cross will be in the world? It will separate families. What's supposed to be our most confident and loving and warm and caring and safe relationship in this temporary existence will suffer great loss at the hands of the cross. A parent will be opposed to children and children opposed to parents. How many of us here today know that by experience? We say with unfortunate regret in our hearts that we have nothing in common with our children. And we have nothing in common with our grandchildren. And we have nothing in common with our aunts and our uncles and our cousins and our grandparents because they aren't believers. They reject the gospel. We are already experiencing the division in our family. It is a serious potential sacrifice that each and every one of us may experience at any moment. We're not in a Muslim country where we might be turned over to the authorities like some of our brothers and sisters who are being disregarded and rejected by their own parents because they come to faith. We're not in that society yet. But we are definitely in the society where we will be social outcasts because of our faith in Christ. And your family members will mock you. And they'll argue. And they'll ridicule. And they'll write you off. And you won't be invited to Thanksgiving. And you won't be invited to Christmas. And you won't be invited to the family outing or the family reunion or the family party. All because you desire to honor God with your life. That is nothing new, church. Since the fall and the beginning of human history, those who have desired to follow God faithfully have been separated from their families. God may call you out like Abraham. And leave your family and go to a place where I will show you. Or it may cause strife in your own family. Job is separated and distraught with his own wife because he will not renounce God. The day is coming when we not only will face ridicule from without, we will face ridicule from within. And those who are closest to you, your most treasured relationships might turn their back on you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? If everything is gone and everything ripped from you and everyone you know and love and trusted turns their back, is Jesus going to be enough? That's a piercing question, but it's a necessary question because according to Christ, that is what is in store for His children. I already know family members in my own life that I am distraught from people in my own family who hate the fact that I'm in the ministry it's coming church is it worth it is it worth the loss of your friends your ambitions your own family is it even worth the loss of your own life because according to Christ, that's really what it means to count the cost. That is the requirement of true biblical faith in Christianity. It's not an embrace all. It's a stand for the standard of God in grace and in truth. And be ready for the device of the division that may come. We're not promised that everybody will flock through these doors. We desire that desperately. 
for as many people as possible to hear the gospel, turn and be saved. That is our true ambition, our true longing as a church. But the reality is, not everybody will embrace it. Are you willing to be stuck out and outcast on the outside for it? This is a far cry church from the Christianity of our day, isn't it? Christianity that's all about popular t-shirts and cool new books and trends and lights and smokes and jazzy new songs and all these other trivial attractions that the church tries to come up with. That's not the Christianity we read about here. This is a life or death Christianity. This is a, it's so important to me I'll go into the underground church Christianity. This is, this is a so important to me kind of faith. I'll hide from the authorities and I'll hide from my family and I'll go off into secret to worship God because He must be worshipped. He has changed my life. That's the Christianity we talk about. Our, our church in today's age, Christianity has been made out to this consumer-oriented kind of religion and not sacrificial-oriented. Christ says the requirement is not come and get the benefits. Christ says the requirement is self-sacrifice. Denying self. Dying to self and trusting in Christ and upholding the standard of God no matter the results and divisions that may come. Are you ready? Are you ready? You know, I love the joy of our church. The unity that we experience most of the time the love that we share, the warmth of our church. I only hope and pray that those things will be what hold us together when the world begins to push against us. How I wish everything could be rainbows and roses and butterflies. It just won't be. Christ Himself says, I do not come to bring peace, but rather division. Let our faith be resolved. Knowing that even though the fire is cast upon the earth, and even though our family may desert us, we stand with Christ. We stand with the Gospel. We uphold the Bible. And we stick together. And we hold tight together. In one mind, one faith, striving side by side together for the faith of the Gospel. This may be all we have is one another in this world. But it's enough. It's enough. If peace vanishes, stick strong to your guns. If division comes, cling tightly to Christ. Lord, we thank You that You warn us of what the future may hold. We're thankful that you, you lay out the reality to us. You don't sugarcoat things. Your Word is true and accurate and real. And we have no reason to be caught off guard and surprised. When we embrace the message of the cross and the Gospel and stand for Your Word, we know what may lay ahead. But we stand today, God, as a church family, born again by Your grace, saying it's worth it. It's worth it, God. It's worth the loss of family members. It's worth the loss of friends. It's worth the loss of career advancement. It's worth the loss of 
social initiatives and, and, and society norms, all these things, it's worth it. It's worth it. God help us when peace vanishes and division comes. Help us. When the gospel is hated and that's all we have, help us. Let us, God, be more concerned about the gospel going forth than anything else. Remove our fears of how it may offend. Remove our fears of how difficult it may be to share. And let us stand for the truth of your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.